Hello everyone, welcome to Langstaff Assembly Podcast. My name is Yanaili Joyce and I'm your host for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you and that it draws you near to God. Whenever we uh, read the Word of God, when we meditate upon it, when we study it, and when we teach it to others, we must always remember that no matter what we read in Scripture, God has different literary styles of doing it, whether it's narrative, so telling a story, or whether it's poetry, using word pictures, or whether it's prose discourse, uh, just having a conversation. Whenever we study the scriptures, we would always do well to remember that it is one unified story that leads to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that summary that helps ground us in God's word and keeps us close to the solid rock of our faith. And so I I want you to remember that as we take on probably one of the most important subjects in all of the scriptures, God's reign. I'd like to spend a few moments this morning and take us through a panoramic view of what God's reign looks like in the scriptures. And then I want to end uh, today by uh, offering up some practical thoughts and uh, a challenge for all of us as we interact with this important subject. Let's begin with a question. How does the Bible describe authority? Authority is directly tied to the concept of God's or of the kingdom, meaning reign and rule. We would today use the term in charge. Who is in charge? This is how the subject of authority is described and played out in Holy Scripture. When we think of the the subject of kingdom, we often think of a monarch. We think of like the British Empire. When Tyndale wrote the first version of the English Bible, that was likely the concept. But the kingdom in Scripture, in the Hebrew Scriptures especially, has more to do with reign and authority. It has to do with rule. Who is ruling over us? And actually, it is only found in two places in the Hebrew scriptures. It describes two different events. One is the inauguration of a king. Just a few weeks ago, we saw the inauguration of a president of the United States. When a king was inaugurated, they would often speak of his kingdom, his reign, his rule, his authority. And the second description in the Hebrew scriptures relates to great victories. And it was a reminder that the reign and rule had been extended. And so the kingdom went on. And these are the two descriptions that are used to describe kingdom or authority in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, as we study the story, the narrative of scripture, we're going to begin at at, at its beginning, which is in Genesis. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. This is the creation story. And I'm going to read it because these are very important uh, words. So God created human beings in his own image. That's very important. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So both male and female are created in the image of God. Then God blessed them and said something that they would have to do together, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. The King James says, have authority over it. And then he uses this word, God says, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So the God of all power and authority 
has made a good creation. And in that creation, he has placed his image in it. The image is male and female humanity. And he has asked us to govern and show his authority by exhibiting his quality and his rule in his creation. And so we were made to reflect the image of God. Now, God doesn't have, as a spirit, he doesn't have uh, the same complexion, perhaps, as we do. So what, in what way we, were we to reflect his image? We were to reflect his image by showing what his character is like. So servant leadership, justice, love, mercy, humility. These were the things in which God bestowed to humanity. And so we reflect God's image made in that way. And as a result, we were to reflect that authority and rule in his good creation. It's interesting that in Genesis 1, seven times God says what he made was good. We know seven ties to creation, seven ties to a lot of important things in scripture. So we recognize this is a very important building project to God. And what he made was good. And he entrusted us to reflect his image and to govern and bring authority to this world in the way in which he wanted it to be brought. And so human authority under God's reign will bring perfect relationships. It will bring harmony and it will bring life. We know this because we see this in the Godhead. They have perfect relationship, perfect harmony, and they are the source of life. And as the reflection of God, reflecting his image, we were called to do this in the world. So that's what God's reign looks like. However, we know very quickly in the story of God's building project that that building project was massively derailed, catastrophically, because we now live in a world where sins reign. Sin reigns in our world. And we know that as a result of it, authority in our world is abused and does not reflect God's rule. God may be sovereign, but as Jesus said in his prayer to his disciples, we are to pray that God's will, his rule, be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's ultimate building project was to ensure that his rule in heaven would be seen as well on earth. And so when we look at the creation story, we see that humanity was given a choice. Being made in God's image, we were given free will. And we were allowed to choose between life, the tree of life, and the knowledge of good and evil. And instead of allowing God to define good and evil for us, by choosing that tree, humanity chose to choose or chose to define good and evil by their own terms and conditions. And as a result of it, many today in our humanity, we see it even in our own selves, we often choose evil to do wrong things and we make it good. It's something good for us to do. It's good to be greedy. It's good to be covetous. It's good to hurt others for our own personal gain. And this is what the reign of sin has done in God's good creation. And so being in the image of God, we haven't lost uh, what the image of God is because we were made to reflect something. The problem is as a result of the knowledge of good and evil and defining evil on our own terms, we have now designed the God of our own choosing. And all idolatry finds its source in the abuse of power, authority, wealth, blessing, and sex. The very thing that God used as a blessing to multiply the earth uh, to carry out 
his plan of his good creation. And that's where all idolatry finds itself in the abuse of those three th things. So though we are made in the image of God, and at times in humanity, we can see God's image being reflected uh, through us, more times than not, what we see are the consequences of our sin. And so that image has been tarnished. And God's building project is about restoring his plan and bringing it to its rightful conclusion. So under sin's reign, human authority looks a lot more like what we're used to in the world that we were born into. It is a human authority that is designed around broken relationships. It is surrounded by violence and disharmony. And ultimately, we know that sin's reign leads to death. So the very opposite of God's building project and God's plan is what we see carried out in the world. But the good news story of the gospel and the good news story of the one story that leads to Jesus is that God's ultimate plan is and always has been from this mo moment in history to the present age to the future. It has always been to restore this building project. And so as we study the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, 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 the books of Moses, we discover a prototype. God is going to design a, a, a pattern of which he's going to work and deal with humanity as he unfolds the rescue plan that he has, been, that he has put together before the foundation of the earth with a purpose of restoring his good creation and bringing it back into perfect order and perfect governance and authority. And so when we study the narrative, the stories of the Torah, we discover this pattern. And I'm going to take us through the pattern, and then we're going to see how it plays out. When, when uh, God works in history, he works in a cycle. It's, a, it's actually a Jewish way of thinking, um, and they would have got it from the God of, of Yahweh, their, their God, the God of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is God will work in a cycle to show how he is working through humanity so that when we see it again, we know it's not just random events. We know that it is actually God at work. So within the Torah, we see this prototype, if you will, this cycle that God designs. And it starts with the Tower of Babel. After God had worked with several families, carrying out his covenant promises, he, he, he gave his promises to Adam and Eve. He followed it up with Seth. He then continues it through the, 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 the family of Noah. And then from Noah, after the ark, the, 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 the family builds this tower. Instead of listening to God and living under his power and authority, they congregate themselves together and they build a city. They go completely against God and they design what we would understand today as sin's reign. They build a tower, uh, a temple, if you will. Their desire was to bring heaven and earth together. God would later do it in a tabernacle and in a temple and in his son and in us today, the church. So this was God's plan, but they wanted to do it their way and in their time. And so they built this structure and they tried to unite themselves around defining what good and evil was. And as a result of this, this first great world empire, this great city, God decided to intervene and God scattered the people. Now, I should say that this theme is carried out from Genesis to Revelation, and in Revelation, we read that the great Babylon is destroyed. So this is a repeat. Babylon, Babel, which is where the root word comes from, is synonymous in scripture with sin's reign, 
It has to do with human authority defining good and evil by their own conclusion and by their own terms and not by God's. And so this is the beginning of the prototype. It starts with uh, sin's reign. And then as we study the Torah, we see that it ends up in exile. Initially, God scatters the people through a variety of languages, and then he raises up one family, Abraham, but even Abraham's family finds themselves in exile in the land of Egypt, away from God's promises. And in this place of exile, after 400 years, they cry out to God. And in their cries to God, they, they cry for deliverance. They cry for uh, to be freed from the bondage that they were in. And this is part of God's prototype. This is what God is going to do to develop his theme of restoring his good creation. It starts with Babylon. It moves into exile. And ultimately, it is seen by God delivering his people. And there is no rescue greater than when God himself does it. He doesn't do it with chariots. He doesn't do it with horses. He doesn't do it with soldiers. He doesn't do it the way Babel or, or Babylon would do it. They don't do it with the might of armies and the might of, of boundaries and borders. God does it by his spoken word. As he did in the creation story, he will now seize this opportunity to do it again. And by his words, the plagues fall on Egypt. And by his words, Pharaoh is crushed. And Pharaoh lets the people go. And of course, there is so much wonderful imagery in it. The lamb, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And all of this is to provide a prototype. God is designing the cycle by which he is now going to put into operation and use for the deliverance of his good creation. And so that's the prototype in, in, the, in the Torah. From then on in, we go into the books, uh, the prophetic books, we go into the history books of the Hebrew scriptures. And what we see from this moment on in history is this cycle being played out again. It starts with Israel. Israel returns to the land. Israel has judges. Ultimately, they will have kings. And the height of Israel's history is under the reign of Solomon. And most people, even Christians at times, we reflect on Solomon and all his power and glory and his majesty and his wisdom. And there's good, there's good ties to those things on spiritual endeavor. But sometimes we focus too much on that and we don't actually see what is happening to the nation of Israel. Israel was called by God out of Egypt and at Mount Sinai, they entered into a covenant with him. And as part of that covenant, they promised God that they would reflect his image in the world, that they would be his representatives, his priests, and that they would be the blessing to the world. They would show the world what it's like to be under God's reign. But 500 years after making that promise, we see them at the pinnacle of the nation of Israel's history. And we see it with all of its earthly glory, and yet it is missing the power and majesty of God's reign. In Deuteronomy, God writes through Moses that the day would come when Israel would have a king. And when you, just, when you read of what the king of Israel was to be like, you realize that Solomon is the exact opposite. The king of Israel was never to have slaves, and yet Solomon, he had slaves like Pharaoh had in Egypt. And he used them to build his building projects like Pharaoh used to build his. When you read Deuteronomy, you discover that the kings of Israel were not supposed to have horses from Egypt or chariots. And 
That's exactly what Solomon did. And to show you where the Israel had gone, when Solomon dies, what do we have? Broken relationships. The tribes are divided. They never come back together. Violence ensues. And ultimately, it leads to much death. And without understanding uh, a scripture in detail or going through the words of the prophets, it may just sound like a story of a nation that's going sideways. But in reality, what is happening is that this promise that they made to be in the reflection of God and show God's reign in the earth had now been replaced as it had been in the Torah. Israel had become Babylon. And as a result of this, it should come as no surprise to us who study uh, biblical history that in the next step would be exile. If they are going to become like Babylon, then God says, I will deliver them to Babylon. And ultimately, that's where the southern tribes end up. They end up in exile. Now, if you were to ask uh, a Jewish person who was born in and around the time of our Lord Jesus Christ, when the exile came to an end, the answer would be the exile had not come to an end. It's interesting when we study the history, we can come to the conclusion that after 70 years, the words of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and, and then even what Zerubbabel did, we get this impression that they returned from exile. Well, a remnant returned, they rebuilt walls, they rebuilt a, a, a temple, nothing like its predecessor, but they rebuilt it. And those things were definitely required because when the Messiah came, those things were to be constructed and in place but they never actually returned from exile. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots and the Essenes study all the Jewish uh, movements of Jesus's era. They all have different forms, but all of them understand without a shadow of a doubt that the exile had not come to an end. From, from Babylon, they went into the hands of the Medes and Persians, from the Medes and Persians to the hands of the Greeks. And even though they broke from the Greeks under the Maccabees for 100 years, Israel never fully recovered and they never felt as though they had returned from exile. And that is why when Jesus Christ was born, Israel was looking for a deliverer because they knew in the Torah, the prototype was Babylon, exile, and then God's intervention, it would, it would have to fall with an ultimate rescue. And that's what they were waiting for. And so the Hebrew scriptures leave us very abruptly. They don't leave us with the conclusion to a story. They leave us on a cliffhanger because they're still within exile. And we are waiting for the moment for God to intervene again, as he did in creation with spoken word, as he did in Egypt with his spoken word. The nation is waiting for a deliverer, God himself, who will rescue them again, a new Exodus story. And of course, we know that this story commences in the Gospels. It commences with God speaking, but this time speaking through a person, not Moses, not another prophet, but speaking through himself, God manifest in flesh. So Jesus's arrival is right on track. And in fact, when we study the four Gospels, the Gospel of John tells us of his uh, encounter at the age of 12, that he would be about his father's business. But when we study Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what are the first words that Jesus utters? You know, it's very important to remember the first words of an important person. What are, what are the first words that Jesus utters? Because these are the first words of his public ministry. 
I'm just going to give you Mark's example, but they're all the same. Mark 1 and 15, Jesus says, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is near or is approaching. It's like a plane that's landing. It's coming. It's landing. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. The gospel good news is always tied to kingdom. It's always tied to speaking about God's reign and God's rule. And these are the first words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the written narrative of scripture. The good news that the promises have all come. God's promises are now going to be fulfilled. The prototype is going to make way for the ultimate reality. This is how God is going to bring his building project back in order. This is how he's going to bring it to its rightful conclusion. The conclusion he had all along. Yes, sin has done lots of bad things, but God will not be conquered over it. God will defeat sin. He will defeat death. He will defeat hell. He will bring it to its rightful conclusion. And this was the message of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it should not be any mistake that all roads in scripture lead to the cross and lead to resurrection. They all lead to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Roman Empire, they used to say all roads lead back to Rome. Well, in the scriptures, as I started from the beginning, the unified story, all the scriptures, as Jesus mentioned on the road to Emmaus, all the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, all of it summarized is one unified story that leads to our Lord Jesus Christ. God would rescue his people, all of us, from the fallen humanity by stepping in and by doing it himself. And that is what we see in the cross, and that is what we see in the resurrection. The cross reminds us that the tree of death was required in order to restore for humanity the tree of life. And the Lord Jesus Christ becomes the perfect representative. The Apostle Paul says that he is the image of God. Does that not give you the language of Genesis 1? We were made in the image of God. And the only way to restore this good creation was to have one made in God's image to reflect God's perfect humanity, God's perfect order, and God's perfect rule and authority. And this is what the Lord Jesus, this is who he is. This is what he came to do. And he fulfills it at the cross. And so we see deliverance, we see the rescue, and in his resurrection, we see a new creation, one who is coming out from the grave, one who is designing a new creation, finishing this building project, bringing it to where God always intended it to be, and we have been called to be part of that new creation. That is why when someone places their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are called new creatures in him. We don't fully live it out today, but the day is coming. The promise of Jesus's resurrection is sure that one day we will all be resurrected as well. And we will in its full consummated glory, we will be part of his new creation. We will be part of this building project that has been brought back together because of God. And so Matthew 28, 18 to 20, before Jesus ascends into glory, he leaves these words all tied to the subject of God's reign. He says, this is the great commission to his disciples. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I bolded those words there. It doesn't say will be given to me. Too many people today live with this idea that one day he will, but he makes it clear, all authority, all governance, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And knowing that truth, he says, go therefore, as a result of this, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we live today with the glorious truth that because of resurrected morning, Jesus has all authority. It has all been given to him. And so we, the church, are the most privileged people on earth today, not only made up of Jews, but extended because of the cross and the resurrection, extended to all nations and all tongues. And we have been called to be part of one family here on earth that has been redeemed. And we have been given this wonderful vocation of telling this good news to others and reflecting in the world today what God's reign looks like. This is a very important vocation we were given. Israel was given the vocation of showing what it would be like, and we have been called to show today as a church, as the church, we have been called to show what it does look like. And we have the cross and we have the resurrection to go to, to help us in that understanding. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 tells us Christians today that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness or the rule or reign or kingdom of darkness, as the King James would say, and transferred us to the kingdom, the rule, the reign of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we, the church today, are waiting for the king who is coming. He is coming again and he will consummate what he inaugurated when he said the kingdom was near. He will bring to its fullness this building project when in the world today we still have the reign of sin dominating and the kingdom of God is actually breaking free. It's breaking through. The reign of God is seen in, in people today as the spirit of God enters into them. They repent of their sin and they come to him. We're seeing this transition, but one day when he comes, sin will be totally abolished. It will be judged and put in its rightful place and all that will remain is God's reign and God's rule. And that is why as Christians today, we long for the blessed hope that we have, whether in these bodies or if our bodies are in the grave, we still wait for the day when Jesus is coming, when he will make everything new. Revelation 11 and 15 reminds us, the kingdom of the world, the rule and reign of the world has become, this day that is approaching, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, the Messiah. And he shall reign as the prophets and the poets wrote in the Hebrew scriptures, he shall reign forever and ever. This is the great hope. And so this is the new heaven and the new earth, the promise that we have been given that God, he didn't say, I can't, Jesus made it clear. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to destroy this world. It's a good creation I made. Sin, the reign of sin has done so many terrible things, but I have come that the world through me might be saved. His ultimate plan and glory right from the very beginning is to restore the building project he made in Genesis 1. And he has done it. The promise is seen in the cross and the resurrection. And he will do it when he judges the earth in righteousness, the world in righteousness, and he brings everything to its proper order again. And so as I close, I want to tie the theme and the subject to something very practical. Who is reigning in our lives today? Before God, if we're believers, if we haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus and you're here today, then you have to come to him. He is the one who reigns and you must receive him. But to those of us who are, who are saved, we have the eternal security of that. But I, I'm thinking more of our Christian walk. Are we allowing in our walk to show the world? Are we showing the world in our walk? 
that we belong to Christ, that God reigns over us. Look at the diagram here. I, someone sent this to me a little while ago, and uh, it, it depicts two different kinds of reigning. And I'm going to read uh, something that ties really well into this. And this is kind of my practical delivery as we come to the end of this important subject. F.F. Bruce wrote an article, The Church of Jerusalem, in the Christian Brethren Research Fellowship Journal back in April of 1964. Um, uh, this is in the UK. And uh, I, I've enjoyed these words for, for some time that he wrote in that article concerning the church. Uh, he wrote this, many years ago, I heard E.H. Broadbent speaking on the fold and the flock in John 10. He pointed out that the sheep in the fold are kept together by the surrounding walls, while the sheep of a flock are kept together by the shepherd. Moreover, the number of sheep that any fold can contain is limited, while there was nothing to hinder the sheep which the good shepherd led out of the fold, having their number increased by the adherence of those other sheep that had never belonged to the original fold. But he went on developing the parable. Some of the sheep argue that in spite of the care and devotion of their shepherd, they would feel safer if they had walls around them. And so they started to build some. But said Mr. Broadbent, sheep are not good builders. Some of the walls they built were effective enough in a way, but so restricted that they shut most of the flock out. There were other walls on the contrary, which were comprehensive enough, but so badly constructed that they let several wolves in too with predictable consequences. The moral is that the people of Christ need no walls to keep them together. We may learn valuable lessons from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but Nehemiah's wall is not a model for churches to follow. I found those words to be very searching because when we think of our own Christian walk or collectively as a local church, it is very easy, as Mr. Broadbent said, for us to create walls. And oftentimes these walls are created in a desire to do good things. But as he wrote, sheep don't make, don't build well. We're not good builders. Sheep are not good builders. And some walls that we build at times, they divide people that should never be divided. And there are times where we build walls that are good for safeguarding, but because we weren't called to build those walls, those walls are not very good at all. And as a result of it, the wolves come in and it has devastating consequences. This model here looks good and looks safe, but this model is what it looks like when sin reigns, when Babylon reigns, because human authority is defining what good and evil is. And unfortunately, we define it on our own terms. The example on the right here is the scriptural example of a shepherd. And all of us are tied to the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. The shepherd knows who the sheep are, and the shepherd knows how to protect the sheep. We were called to be disciple to him. Everyone in this diagram is tethered to the cross. All are saved. They've come to the knowledge of sins forgiven. The arrows show us that in our walk, sometimes our relationship with Christ is growing. We're getting closer. And sometimes it's going in the opposite direction and it's, it's getting smaller. You see, relationships don't become stagnant. They're either growing or they're shrinking at all times. We're all tethered to the good shepherd. We're all connected to him. We all have eternal security. But in our walk, in any given day or week or month or year, we find ourselves either growing closer to him or we find ourselves growing closer or further away. And so we have been called 
all of us to be discipled by him and to disciple one another. No one Christian in the same family or in the same church is at the same position in their life. Some are new converts. Some are new believers. Some are backslidden. Some have endured carrying their cross daily and following him. Nobody here is more special than anyone else. And all of us, our eyes should be centered on the good shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. This is what it looks like from the biblical record when God reigns. And this is what it looks like when sin reigns. Yes, the walls may look like the chariots and may look like the horsemen, but it's when sin reigns. We're counting on our own human power and authority. And this is what it looks like when God reigns, when Jesus is the center. Clifton mentioned on Wednesday that Christ is the head of the church. And this is what it looks like. And so this is a real searching question for all of us in our life right now, presently, and in our local church, even though we are so remote from one another. Is our focus, are we being reigned by God or are we allowing sin to reign over us? This was a famous uh, line from the Reformation days, Merle Dobin, and he wrote these words. As we advance through the centuries, light and life begin to decrease in the church. Why? Because the torch of the scripture begins to grow dim and because the deceitful light of human authorities begin to replace it. We need to look at the fortified structures we've placed in our life, the walls that we have designed as a, as a mechanism to protect ourselves. And, and it might, be, might have good idea and good intention, but we cannot define good and evil by our own terms. We see this from history. Our focus must be on scripture and our focus must be on Christ. He defines for us what light looks like. He is the good shepherd. He is the rock. He is the one who gave his life for the sheep. May we be challenged in the world we live today. We know the big story. We know the big picture. We have the blessed hope of living in that story and being part of that great expectation and hope. But in our life today, may we all be encouraged to live a life in which we allow God to reign over us. Hey, thank you so much for listening. What a privilege it was to share God's word with you today. We pray that you were fed, strengthened, and more equipped to run the race with perseverance. To listen to more podcasts like this, make sure to subscribe. For more content from Langstaff and to connect with us, go to langstaffassembly.com. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you next time.